Welcome to the Pike Horror Show. Hello, my name is Richard, and this is the Pike Horror Show, the only show with undeniable proof that the Earth is flat. But I'm not, I'm not going to tell you. Now, I definitely want to get into some spooky stuff, because that's what the show is all about. But before I scare the pants right off you with my great topics, I wanted to give a quick update. Maybe you knew this, or maybe you noticed, but this episode is actually me coming back from a short break. I made about 15 episodes of the Pike Horror Show, and then I took a month off to kind of plan and kind of figure out where I was going to go next. And while I was able to do some planning, I wouldn't say I have a plan. Nothing set in stone, at least. But what I do know is the 15 episodes that have already been posted and the next five episodes, including this one, so this one and four more, are going to be considered season one. Kind of like a trial season to just kind of figure out what I'm doing. And after 15 episodes, I'm certainly not an expert, but I feel like the Pike Horror Show is kind of finding its voice. And in no way am I trying to imply that the 15 episodes were practice or throwaway episodes, because in all honesty, I love them. I'm sure in a year or so I'll look back and cringe on how amateur they are, but they serve as a nice time capsule. I have a lot of big plans for the Pike Horror Show and I definitely want to keep doing it, but even if I stopped right now, I would be proud of what I've done. And I think it's because of that that I needed to step away, I needed to make some plans, and sort of finish it with a bang. I shouldn't have said that because I haven't recorded all the episodes, so hopefully with a bang, fingers crossed. Well, at least finishing it at all. I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but essentially what I'm saying is, I'm back right now, and there will be episodes of the Pike Horror Show for the next month at least. At that point, I'll probably do a little bit of a break, but then the spooky month's coming, And even if I wanted to quit the Pike Horror Show, which I don't, I couldn't do it right around October, who would be around to talk about all the scary stuff of the season, like a skeleton, or a ghost, or a pumpkin? I just wanted to say something, because I worried that the break, which was pretty abrupt, people would look at it as if it's me giving up. It's me like, well, I tried, and then I just stopped doing it. But it's because I love doing it so much, I needed to kind of refocus. And now I feel refocused. I was able to watch a lot more movies, talk to a lot more people about horror, read some books by Becky Chambers, which, you know, they're not horror books, but I'll recommend them to anyone who will listen. And my oh my, look who has the microphone. Also, this sounds like a joke, but expect more goofball energy on the Pike Horror Show. I know the show is already side-splittingly funny, but in addition to loving horror and kind of dissecting horror elements and how they apply to the viewer and, like, the storytelling, I also really like making bad jokes. And looking back, it seems like a disservice to separate those two elements. So until this point, the Pike Horror Show has been a horror podcast with good jokes. Now it's a horror podcast with, well, jokes. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. And while we're just sort of chatting and doing updates, lately I've been working with the Game Studies podcast, Studying Pixels. It's a podcast about game studies and video game culture hosted by two very funny and very talented people, Stefan and Dan. Now, Stefan and Dan are very smart, they're very educated, they know what they're talking about. But when you listen, it becomes very clear very early that this is a podcast about video games by people who love video games. Not to mention, it's a very accessible and approachable way to kind of dip your toe into the world of game studies. So like I said, I've been working with Studying Pixels for a little while now, but behind the scenes. I say behind the scenes, but some might say it's all the most important stuff. You know, stuff like a little bit of editing, or boosting morale, or fangirling every time I talk to Stefan or Dan. Not to mention bothering both of them on Twitter. You know, those sorts of essential business operations. And that's not me hedging to say that 
studying pixels will interrupt the Picora show. It's just also what I've been up to. Not to mention, it's a show I would have recommended even if I didn't know the people who made it. Also, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sticking with me through the surprise break and through this update segment, and for being patient and understanding moving forward, whatever that might look like. I mean that more optimistically than it sounds. Whatever that might look like. Did that sound more opt- I didn't feel more optimistic, but that's what I was going for. With all that being said, let's move on to the rest of the show, and to transition, I will, uh, play something on my kalimba. There, I used it for something. Now no one can ever tell me it was a waste of money ever again. Now, something I don't get to talk about very often is my love of indie games. And of course I love all video games. Horror-related, not horror-related, AAA, independent studios, I love them all. But for me, indie games always have an extra charm to them. A lot of the times they feel like passion projects or labors of love. Plus, they can use game mechanics that might not be marketable or practical to use in a AAA title. And not to talk negatively of big studios or AAA games, but when you work for a big studio, I feel like it's easier to be sort of cookie cutter and know what works and stick with that as opposed to a team that's made up of you and your buddies or just some people who are really passionate for a project. And there's nothing wrong with Call of Duty, but the studio that makes Call of Duty knows people want to buy Call of Duty. Or enough people do where it would be smart financially to keep making Call of Duties. They wouldn't look at all this market research and all these trends only to make a decision that doesn't go along with that. But if you look at a game like Shovel Knight, it's a lot less like Call of Duty and a lot more like a developer saying, hey, I like Mega Man and let's give a knight to Shovel, I don't know. I'm oversimplifying the history of Shovel Knight, but I think I'm making my point. Also, this might sound kind of odd, but there is a bit of a gambling element when it comes to indie games too. Gambling in the sense that you're taking a chance, not gambling in the sense that you lost your home. With AAA titles or games that are part of a series, you kind of know what you're signing up for. And even if you say, oh, I love Assassin's Creed Valhalla, it's my favorite game, and that's perfectly fine, that is perfectly valid, but if you've played any other Assassin's Creed, even if Valhalla changed everything, you kinda had context. You had some sort of expectation for the game, even if the game ended up exceeding it. If you see an independent game and all you have is a few screenshots and very little to go off of, it is a little bit like a risk. You can get some core elements from it, you can see if it's like a metroidvania, if it's a platformer, if it's like a roguelite, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. For example, Hades by Supergiant Games. It's since gotten a pretty big following and a lot of attention, but Supergiant is still an independent studio. Which of course makes it that much cooler that Hades blew up the way it did. But for me personally, I was very cool to Hades when it came out. Not cool in like a sunglasses on a skateboard kind of way, but cool in just like a hesitant way. I won't go too into it just because this is a horror podcast and we are getting a little away from it, but just the pictures and the videos didn't necessarily make me excited for the game and the way people described it. A lot of people talked about how great the characters were and how great the world building was. And I love world building, but that doesn't make a game fun. If somebody approaches you and says, hey, this game, it really sucks, but it's, <laughs> it's got good conversations. I'd be very hesitant of that, as opposed to a game that's like, hey, the gameplay's really, really fun, but the story sucks. But after the game started building some hype and people were really paying attention to it, I saw it was on sale on Steam, so I thought, let's risk it, let's take a chance. And in a lot of ways, an indie game is kind of win-win. Either A, you get to try something niche, 
B, you get to try something a lot of people are talking about but isn't super mainstream. Or C, you get a great gaming experience from a game you had no expectations for. And I'm so glad I tried Hades because the second I started like moving around, I immediately loved it. It can look a little chaotic from an outside perspective, but as a player, you're kind of dashing around, you're using all these moves, you're you're pulling off these combos, and every time you die, the world resets, so there's unlimited playability. And since it's divvied up into runs, it's super easy just to pick up and play, and then walk away from. As opposed to like Elden Ring, which I've put maybe over 200 hours in? But don't tell anyone that. That's a secret. That's between you and me now. And while Hades was a great game, I also got it on sale, which is one of my favorite things. Finding an indie game on sale on Steam. I like to find super cheap horror games I had never heard of and then buy them. I am very good at the buying part. I am not so good at the actually playing them part. So a bunch of indie, mostly horror games were just sitting in my Steam library. And I thought, while I'm taking a break from the Pike Horror Show, I'll play through them and then I'll have something to talk about. I tried my best. I only was able to get through a few of them. This isn't my definitive list of all horror indie games that have ever been made, or even my list of all my favorite indie horror games. These are simply the indie horror games that I've played in the past month. And truth be told, it's not that many. And the first game I wanted to talk about is called Iron Lung. Just to give a quick rundown of Iron Lung, essentially you, the player, are sealed in a submarine, and your only sort of visual contact with the world around you is a camera. So you're in the submarine, but there's no sort of window or or screen showing you where you're going. All you have is the map, and you can steer yourself and move forward, and you just have to know where you are by the coordinates and how it relates to the map. That movement mechanic in and of itself is kind of a puzzle. I was very confused right away because I mistook the land for the water, and so I was just smashing into stuff, and I had no idea why. Then when you figure it out, you start to kind of inch your way through this map. And who you actually control is first person, so you can, like, look within the submarine, but there's nowhere to look. There's nowhere to be. You can either steer the submarine or look at pictures you took. But the camera isn't a constant stream of what's going on outside. You have to deliberately take that picture, and then you can see it. So all you really have is this small, confined area. You get glimpses of the outside world through these pictures, but it's not something you can just look through. All you have visually is this rusty color, everything is super unwelcoming, the pipes are there, there's these valves, and you see a map with coordinates. So you are stuck in this claustrophobic space, but through the gameplay, you understand that you're moving, which I thought was very interesting. This might sound obvious, but movement in video games is so important. It can make or break an entire experience. So the fact that Iron Lung gave you a first-person avatar, but... That wasn't the game, essentially, so you're in this space and you can move, but the game itself is the acceptance or understanding of movement, even though you're not seeing it or experiencing it in a traditional sense. Another thing is that Iron Lung is really short, but I think that's to its benefit. The gameplay and atmosphere and environment, it's all very interesting, but I'm not really sure if you'd be able to make a full game out of it. Personally, I was able to beat it in about two hours, and I'm sure there's other stuff to do, but I thought two hours was perfect. It was a cool idea and it didn't overstay its welcome. And I think with any creative medium, after the audience looks around and says, okay, I get it, can we like move along please? You have very little time left to stretch the idea. That's why I feel some horror movies would work better as short films because you get the premise, you kind of understand what's going on in the first 20 minutes and you're like, that's cool, but that's all this has to offer. 
And if your movie, or in this case your game, is good for a set amount of time, and it goes past that set amount of time, all it does is take away from the good part. And for me, for Iron Lung, I thought under two hours was perfect. You're introduced to this world, you're given all the tools you need, you kind of inch your way through it, and then it's over. It doesn't take you to a hub world, you don't have 10 missions you need to do with a submarine. In a lot of ways, there's not even a plot that you can interact with. You're told the plot, but you can't make any sort of change, you don't have any effect on it. The game shows you a paragraph, telling you why you're there, it puts you in the submarine, and then you're off. And I think that was a really smart way to approach it. Which is me giving the creator, David Zemanski, a compliment, but he does not need my compliment. In addition to Iron Lung, he's worked on some other pretty great and pretty recognizable indie games. In addition to Iron Lung, he's solo developed a handful of games. He worked on the retro first-person shooter Dusk, he's worked on a few games in the DreadX Collection series, and Gloomwood, which is still unreleased but is getting an early access release in August. All in all, I thought Iron Lung was one of the most interesting horror experiences and maybe horror experiments. And if that rundown sounds interesting to you, I'd definitely recommend checking it out. Right now, I think it's only like $6, and like I said before, it's pretty short. Might be just what you need if you're looking for something new. The other game I wanted to mention was Murder House by the developer Puppet Combo. If you're familiar with indie games, or horror games, or new games that feel retro, you may be familiar with Puppet Combo. The studio's been around for a while, and they've made a lot of great stuff, but lately I've been hearing, I guess, just more about them. And I'm not exactly sure why. I, I might just be speculating, but it could have something to do with the fact that their game Nun Massacre came out on PlayStation consoles earlier this year, and then just last month in June, it came to the Xbox. Not to mention, at their first ever Puppet Combo Direct much like the Nintendo Direct, except scarier, they announced that some of their other games would be coming to consoles as well. But if you are unfamiliar with Puppet Combo, essentially, their kind of calling card is making games that, you know, were made recently, but have the aesthetic of a PlayStation 1 survival horror game. There's a lot of examples of those, but I think the most recognizable would be like the first Resident Evil. It's kind of hard to explain, but the game looks kind of low poly and has sort of a grit to it, but it still looks great and it's still terrifying. I think as an outsider looking in, you may think, oh, it looks like an old game. It must not be that scary. But because of the way it looks, it adds so much to it. But in addition to looking sort of retro and like it's from that time, also its controls are like that time. And while some of Puppet Combo's games are in first person, and I think are meant to be played in first person, some of the games are more of a third person setup where you either have a fixed camera or you have a camera you're kind of negotiating with as you're navigating through the location, wherever the location is. And it's always changing. Sometimes it's a mall, sometimes it's a house, sometimes it's a one game is set in a laundromat. You know, it's the location isn't necessarily important. And that's the cool thing about horror. It can get you anywhere. <laughs> Cut that out. Don't put that in. For example, Murder House, the game I'm kind of focusing in on, the killer or the slasher is a man in a bunny suit, like an Easter bunny suit. And the interesting thing about that is just that statement alone, the fact that the killer is an Easter bunny, can get two very different yet valid responses. I could see someone saying, oh, that's silly, that's not scary at all, that would totally take me out of it. But I could also see someone saying, an Easter bunny? That's horrifying, there's no way I want to deal with that. And while the bunny is certainly scary and off-putting, the location is also pretty scary. I'll just read the murder house description on Steam. A local news team breaks into an abandoned house to chase a salacious ghost story until a maniac chases them. VHS-era 80s slasher, PS1-style survival horror. 
And after playing the game for a little while, I don't think a full trailer would have explained the game as well as that little paragraph did. Well, I guess story-wise, it could have set it up a little bit better, but the fact that it's like, you're in a house, it has the 80s-era VHS aesthetic, and it's a PS1 survival horror. And I think that's great, because you won't be surprised going in. I do think it would be a little off-putting and maybe sort of uninviting to open a game and expect it to be something brand new and be like, oh, it's like old. Oh, it's got tank controls. Oh, it's hard to move around. But somebody who loves old PS1 survival horror games will see that and be like, hell yes, an updated, brand new survival horror game. And I think that's so fantastic because there's nothing better than brand new nostalgia. When you find something that's not old or something you have to take with a grain of salt or pretend you don't notice the bad effects, it's new and polished, but it still feels like it's from that time. It's a recreation of the memory and the experience more so than the actual content that made you feel that way. But on the flip side, for example, I was born in 1993, right? And although I am ancient, I wasn't old enough to be playing survival horror games in the 90s. I was a baby. So for someone like me who doesn't really have that nostalgia, it's a great way to experience it. It's a great way to try out that experience to kind of know the vibe and the feeling without having to go buy a PlayStation 1. And while some of the Resident Evil remakes go pretty far into left field and change the game completely, which is fine, they're pretty fun, there is a remake of the original Resident Evil that may be pretty quote-unquote faithful. It was still cleaned up and built from scratch and put on another system, so it's just not the same. And the remake is great, don't get me wrong, it's a very fun game. But I think the game was remastered for a new audience to make the series more accessible. Maybe drum up a little hype for whatever was coming next, which I think was Resident Evil 4. And while Murder House and Puppet Combo are trying to make those older games more accessible, or at least the feel of those older games more accessible, I think you could argue they're doing it more authentically than, than the way remakes are. And there are definitely more entries than just Resident Evil, but that's the only series I've played every game in, so we work with what we got. And just for transparency, I've never beaten Murder House, I didn't get all the way through it, but when I stopped playing, it was just a break, it wasn't because I got frustrated. And to be honest, there are things that someone could find frustrating. First of all, you get murdered, so that's, like, pretty frustrating. Not to mention there are save rooms, and you need a particular item to use the save feature, which is reminiscent of another game I've mentioned four times. But even taking all of that into consideration, I think Murder House is great. The art style immediately gripped me. The pacing is set up extremely well. The puzzles are based in reality, and they kind of make sense. And it made me feel nostalgic for a time period and a game genre that I don't really have any nostalgia for. And that's a great feeling for the player, and I would say pretty high praise for a game that is trying to replicate an older style. To sum it up, I am a big fan, and I do plan on finishing it very soon. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and being patient with me. There's exciting new stuff on the way, but if this is your first episode, first of all, hello. And second of all, there's plenty of episodes you can go back and check out. There are episodes about horror movies, scary books, scary video games. And with the Pike Horror Show being about anything horror-related, hopefully that keeps expanding. So you're going to want to check out those older episodes, going to want to stick around for newer episodes, and the best way to do that is to follow wherever you listen. Just a little tease, uh, next week's episode is a total game-changer. That might be a little dramatic, but it's an episode I really like, and I'd like you to hear it. Thanks again for listening. My name is Richard, and this is the Pike Horror Show.